So it's, it's a lot easier just to click on a website and read it, but I think the main benefit of podcasts is that, for me, I like to do whatever I can to keep my mind occupied rather than listen to music or whatever. So yeah. uh, on my commutes, I'll like put on a, a podcast and listen to it, and it'll be like a three-hour-long podcast, and throughout the week, I'll be lis- listening to it on my way to work, which is about a half an hour drive, and then on the way back is another half an hour so i'll knock it out easily within the week yeah and uh i mean that's what i do i uh, that's that's my my podcast listening is my commute so yeah people, uh, people are like yeah. oh that's two hours or three hour long podcast and we're like you can break it up you don't it's not a it's not a movie you know <laughs> you can no. you can always just uh, turn it off and listen to it on your next commute you know Exactly, exactly. Especially now with, like, Bluetooth capability in these cars, you can just, uh, yeah, you know, it'll right pick up. up right up right where you left off, so. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, and I like the longer ones when they do the breaks. Yeah. So, it's, it's nice when they have these breaks, so it's, you can just have an interval, stop it, and then continue later on. So, we're rolling right now. Uh, do you want to give the intro, Mike? Assalamu alaikum. <laughs> Welcome to the Mad Mum Looks. This is Dr. Mohammed Gilan, by the way, if y'all didn't know. Uh, we're here with uh, Sheikh Amr Said and Sim, and uh, so uh, Muhammad. Um, last time we talked, you were in Canada, I think, as a professor of neuroscience, right? Yeah, I was teaching. Um, I was teaching second year brain and behavior, which is what is it? Junior? A Junior in so- university? Sophomores. So we sophomore. call them sophomores. Sophomore? Yeah, sophomore. So that's what I was teaching, yeah. Okay. And now all of a sudden you're in medical school. What, are you first year medical student or you're going your second year in Brisbane, Australia? Yeah, just just uh, coming to the last stretch, the last couple of months of first year. Okay. So, uh, so like, first of all, why Aust- like medical school? I, I understand. You, you're a life. The impression I got from you first time around was that you're a lifelong seeker of knowledge. So yeah. you're like the. If there was one guy that was going to get up, leave leave a professorship position in his mid-30s and move like halfway around like to Australia to go to medical school, you're the dude. <laughs> but, but why Australia, though? Well, medical school, for those who are not aware of how this process works and what it takes, um, you, you can have all the prerequisites. You can have all of the right numbers gpa wise and you can have all the right extracurricular activities and community involvement and you could have literally solved world hunger and poverty and applied a medal and gotten a gold medal in the olympics to top it off and be like and play multiple instruments and do so many different things and you could apply to medical school and still get rejected there is an element of uh i don't know if it's random chance or what it is exactly that they do in this process, but there is a lot more students applying to medical school who are very well qualified than they have seats available. So what a lot of uh, students end up doing is you have a couple of options. You can either try for several years and on average, it takes between two to three tries uh, before you can get into medical school uh, from a bit for the application cycle. And that basically means you're spending two to three years trying to get into medical school. Or you can, if you have uh, access to the funds, you can go to uh, uh, places where they can take international students and they have reserved seats for international students that they would charge you full cost for. 
So Australia is one of these places where you can, they have in the University of Sydney, University of Melbourne, University of Queensland, they have seats that are allocated specifically for international students. You still have to have the grades and you still have to have the right MCAT scores and everything. But um, it's basically on a rolling admission. So first come, first serve. So I tried over in Canada to do that. And uh, first round, you know, chances just didn't work out. And I was looking at the prospects and I just, I'm, 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 I'm patient, but to, but to a degree, an application process that takes a year long to finish is just too much for me. And, uh, what I did was I did actually two rounds of applications because of the difference in seasons. And when they started the school year in Australia, Australia, they start in February as opposed to September or August in North America, they have a, a, a different deadline. So I applied both in Canada and I applied in Australia. And basically what, what I said was if I don't get an interview or a, a placement in Canada, I'm just going to go to Australia. And that way, instead of starting medical school in the end of August, I would start at the beginning of February. And that's basically what happened. I got into uh, University of Queensland. So I just uh, packed up my bags when I got the final confirmation that I wasn't going to get an interview in Canada and just uh, picked up and left. So that's that's in a nutshell why I came to Australia. And I, I kept in mind, you know, there are a lot of private schools in the world and you can go to places, I mean, you can go to the Caribbean or someplace like that, but the quality of education, uh, the delivery of the curriculum, there's a lot of things that go into it that are just not um, kosher for my liking. Uh, the University of Queensland is one of the top 50 schools in the world to have a curriculum that is exactly similar to um, uh, Canadian curriculums. Um, if I wanted to go back to Canada, I can do that. Um, is that the plan though? Are you going to, are you, is that the plan to go back to Canada? Um, I, I take things day by day. I don't know if I'm going to be alive in four years. Right. So we need you back, man. We need you back here <laughs> on the other I, side of the world. Let's put it this way. It's, it's open, but I'm very flexible in, um, you know, one of the, uh, one of the counsels that I received that every time you go sit down with a scholar, you always, before you leave, it's like a habit, a force of habit that you need to ask a final parting counsel, final parting advice. Like what, what should I go with? And, um, I keep these kind of like, you know, uh, in Arabic, we say, Hala ala udanak. you know, the Egyptians will say, it's like a, a, an earring. You keep it with you. And one of the counsels that I received from one of my teachers was, Aqim nafsaka fima aqamaka Allahu fi. Establish yourself wherever Allah establishes you. So you might have plans and you might have aspirations to be in different places, but wherever the door opens, I remember Imam Zayd Shakir also telling us one time, he's like, wherever Allah opens doors for you, just go through them. Don't uh, hesitate. Don't try to create things that are not there for you. Wherever you have facilitation, go there. So I found that it was just doors closed in Canada. In the meanwhile, doors opening in Australia right now. So I'm just going to go over there. Um, if the doors open up again for me to go States, Canada, wherever it is, I'm just going to pick up and leave and go wherever Allah puts me, basically. That's the world amazing. right now is so well connected. It's not that big of a deal. You know, Sheikh Amr also had similar situations like that happen when he was going to study abroad. Like, uh, I think when you were going to Mauritania. And yeah. As, you know, um, one thing I noticed with traveling is, man, you just... Uh, you just do a sikhara and you put your trust in Allah and just do it because you yeah. you plan for something else, man. I planned before even uh, going to Egypt to study at Al Azhar. I was planning on going to Riyadh to study uh -huh. in the University of Malik Saud, 
and uh, it didn't work out. You know, they had a quota and and stuff like that. And I just embraced it, man. You know, and uh, I went back to Egypt, and everything has became so easy for me there. When I was there before, all that was very difficult, and then after I came back from Saudi to Egypt, everything just became so easy, and I just embraced it, man. Everything just became very easy. You know, um, but there's. I mean, I had this desire, not to cut you off, but I had this desire. I really wanted to go to Mauritania. I was like, I want to go there. I want to study with the Shiuch. I want to be there. I want to have that experience. And Imam Zaid stopped me. And I think what might have told you guys that in the last time. It's like, you know, you got this opportunity with neuroscience and the PhD and everything. Just go pursue that. And subhanAllah, within a year, I think, after having made that decision or a couple of years after making that decision, literally in the same city that I'm in, I somehow through, it's Lutf, Allah puts me in front of the father-in-law of my teacher right now, who is a direct student of uh, Murabat Muhammad Haddamin, who is a student of Sheikh Rabat al-Hajj. So I, like, I, I get that directly like where I live, where I am. I didn't have to go and, and be there. And then I get to study with him directly and have that you know direct lineage uh, brought to me just simply because I accepted that this is what Allah wanted me to do and he's up, uh, you know, open, open these doors for me. So I'm just going to, you know, Rida. Yeah. Rida is a blessing that a lot, a lot of people do not have. And if you have Rida, Allah will just facilitate so many different things for you. You know, I, 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 one of the things that I've learned in the, in the last year uh, pretty strongly is that anything that happens that's not your control, you have to embrace it. And once you embrace it, you see so many things that open up to you and you can't really explain it to people because they haven't been in that situation, right? But when you're in the situation, all you can tell them to do is be satisfied with something. Um, yeah. It's not all. It's it's easier said than done. But once, and I don't want to say like you know you become some type of wali or anything like that. It's just you see things that you didn't see before when you do that. Do you understand what I'm saying? You, if you embrace what Allah gives you, even in the beginning, if it, if it wasn't very pleasant, but you embrace it properly, you a lot of a lot of things in life start making sense to you. It didn't even make it that didn't even make sense, you know, like a month before. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, and uh, yeah. that's 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 one thing that I think man really keeps me strong is that anything that happens you don't have control over, you know, that's from Allah, man. And mm-hmm. start these doors that start opening up for you. You don't even know these doors even existed and then they start opening up for you, you know? I mean, in the morning when you do your atkar in the morning, it's it's like uh, Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziya when he said that, you know, he's got this practice that he he cannot survive without doing it. You know, this morning atkar after salah, he's sitting there until duha. And some of the prayers that you um, recite, if you pay attention to what you're saying, you know, Allahumma yas'aluka min fuja'at al-khayr wa'udhu bika min fuja'at al-shar. Oh Allah, I ask you from, I ask you the good surprise and I seek refuge in you from a bad surprise. By extension, just by an understanding of that dua by itself, and if you really believe it, throughout your day, any surprise that comes to you, if you train yourself properly, you would have a reaction of, even if it seems apparently immediately that this looks bad, well, I asked Allah initially in the morning for a good surprise. Yeah. And Allah does not, does not get me, inspire me to ask for a dua, except that it's already been answered. So it might look bad right now. Yeah, but I know that's good. So I just sit there, kind of waiting to see, like, where is the angle here? What's the story? Yeah. So. And I think that's that's the that that's what that's the wisdom that's developed from uh, trusting in Allah. You start to look for patterns, and you start waiting for that communication to occur. You know, people say they talk to God, right? But mm-hmm. I, in Islam, it's you noticing the patterns of what Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala is destining for you. And, and you that pattern might be different with what uh, other people might have exactly. right? in their relationship with Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. Like, exactly. Like That's I can't the point. explain that pattern that I have with or my relationship with Allah, and 
to you, and but uh, somebody might be asking you to put it into words, and you just can't explain it. And that's that, that's the part of you know Allah Subhanahu wa Taala being Allah Subhanahu wa Taala with every single creation, whether they're believers or non-believers, He has a relationship with them simultaneously. Whether so every soul gets what it can handle. Exactly. There is absolutely nothing that you go through. Except that Allah made you go through it because you can handle it. It's just a matter of your willing response to that thing that you're going through. Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. So I, I know like after our recent episode that we had with uh, on the Dog, dog Pound Roundtable, you uh -huh. had sent me a, a, a Twitter message saying, man, you guys were all over the place. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That was intentional, no, I, by the way. Yes, it was hilarious. It was funny to listen to, to be honest. What were your um, thoughts on that? Uh, what, what were you well, meaning? Was it my postmodernism comment, or it's the postmodernism? It's the feminism. It's <laughs> the um, uh, the attack on scholars and just the responses and the commentary that you guys offered. It was I thought it was hilarious because yeah. I've been you know the internet is an interesting place <laughs> because um, these algorithms create silos. People have these echo chambers and they just kind of shout into it and they have, and they, and they turn it into realities. They think that this is the real world. This is how it works. Yeah. And it totally is not. Um, this, uh, but yeah, your comment about postmodernism, it's, you know, a lot of Muslims, especially the young activists, you know, out there on the scene doing their thing, they don't realize what they're saying. They don't recognize what they're doing. They have they think they, they have good intentions. But you can get yourself killed with good intentions. Hmm. Um, what is it? The road path to hell is filled with good intentions. Something like that. Yeah, the road like paved to hell. Good intentions. Yeah. But what do you mean? That's a very interesting statement. I want you to elaborate on that. What do you? It's very. It's it's a very general statement. Yet a phenomenal statement to say that they don't know why they're doing something or they don't know what they're doing. What? Uh, let's delve into that. What do yeah, you mean because a lot of people will say like, oh, well, I'm not a postmodernist or I'm not a liberal or I'm not a, a secular person. So go ahead and, and expound on that a little bit and explain to us like where, how our actions are manifesting themselves from all these different ideologies and philosophies that are coming into existence yeah. now. I mean, just to give a bit of a, a, a context to where I'm saying this from, it's um, just with regards to use of terms and stuff. So in, in Andalus Book Club, we just finished covering Soul Machine by Jordan Kari. And this book is just talking about the development of the concept of the soul. How do people speak about the mind and the soul and consciousness and things like that? Now, a lot of people, when they speak about consciousness and the mind and human behavior nowadays, there is an automatic assumption that you're talking about brain patterns. You're talking about brain activity and mental illness as well. You're simply talking about brain activity and that's it. Many people don't realize that even the term the mind, the word itself, was coined back in the late 1700s, early 1800s. That's the initiation of this word. And the origin of this word uh, came out of a desire or a program, a philosophical program to negate the soul because they were getting rid of a lot of theological concepts that Christianity had, that you had a soul, that the soul could be uh, harmed in some way, that you need spiritual treatment to it. All of that they wanted to do away with. And that partly because there was um, abuse from the church with regards to that. And there's a lot of people that did genuinely have problems um, and they ended up being 
quite physically abused and mentally abused and put into mental institutions and and it was just a bad a bad situation so they had this extreme reaction against it that actually said we need to do away with this thing and there was this gradual progression of removing god from the equation slowly to the point where before explicit statements of we don't believe in god there was god was out there he created the world but has nothing to do with it and the human being has doesn't have a thing called a soul anymore you're just a, an aggregate of molecules and flesh and you're just kind of interacting with the environment and there you are and your mind is just arising from this aggregate but there's no metaphysical reality to you there's no ruh to you there's no essence to you so that's so when you speak about i made my mind up and and this person is mentally ill or that you have to go back into what are what are you actually indicating by that when you share articles about uh this brain region is involved in this thing or in that thing you're actually actively participating in a dialogue in a in a in a conversation that underlies it what underlies it is a rejection of the soul it's a rejection of the ruh and it's a rejection of god and a, rege- a rejection of all of these things so you're saying so, the, the, sorry go ahead yeah no no go ahead the, so the word mind just so i'm understanding this properly was developed in order Jump to the first one that coined it I'm sorry? John Locke? Yes, John Locke the, coined the word mind in order yeah. to escape from the concept of uh, basically your, your relationship with your soul and that you have a soul and yes. obviously manifesting into the creator, you know, uh, yes. right? Yes, that's that's the origin of it. So, and this is a really interesting point because we, me and Sim were just talking about this right before the podcast is that we utilize certain things and, you know, coined terms, for instance, um, not knowing where they come from, and we build basically concepts off of that. Exactly. Right. And well, so, uh, what is it? Al hukm ala shay, faroon an tasawurhi. Yes. So yes. you, so you, you've right. built, you've built many concepts based off of what, and I think based off the word mind. But I think that's why uh, many scholars they don't like to use the word mind. They, they, they. They don't even they use the word intellect instead, and only use intellect when it comes to the aql and nothing else, right? Mm, yes, because that's, that's, what, that's what's in our tradition. That's yes. what that's what you're being judged by al aql, and we don't have. I mean, what is the mind? Like in, in Arabic, the closest thing that people have tried at din. Yeah. But what is that? Yeah, it's very hard to yeah. define. Well, yeah. wait, wait, what is that? Then yeah, it, it's it's kind of like what contemporarily it's used as mind. Or consciousness, maybe? It can be kind of like consciousness. I think that's what it may be. Well, the, the, in Arabic, they would say, wa'i, you know? Yeah, uh, to, this to absorb or to understand something, yeah. The, yeah, the but understanding like, portion of your brain. Yes, that's that's how they're using it. So even in Arabic, a lot of these terms have seeped in. And it's interesting to know, by the way, and I really recommend people pick up this book. It's a thick book, but you got to go through it slowly. Um, because he shows how even with problems of translation, how... The inability to translate certain words that were coined in one language resulted in a philosophy and a direction of thought in another culture with a different language that moved in a more radical way. So the French, for example, why did the French have postmodernism is dominated by French thinkers, some Italians, but French thinkers. Where did they get this extreme laicism? You know, this it's not just separation of church and state. It's submission of religion to state, subversion of religion for the sake of the state. Why are they so anti-religion? It's not just about the Catholic church persecuting and stuff. Some of the concepts that were coined by English writers, when they went into French, 
the French translators had a really hard time coming up with, well, we don't have a word like that. This is a new word that's being coined. And so they go back to the Latin root word and then they pick up maybe the 18th definition down on the list that might be close enough to it, but that nobody would actually go and look into that meaning and they would just assume the primary, the primary meaning that comes to mind. And so the soul moved from being talked about as a metaphysical reality into this material thing that just manifests itself from your brain activity. And slowly it, it gave rise to a more radical movement in France that was not as temperate as it was in England. So now you have in Arabic kind of the same thing happening with some of the concepts that are being translated from English into Arabic. Some of the words don't have a translation. We don't have a concept like that in Arabic to use. So they, they try to come up with a word, um, look into some of the root meanings, but what underlies it is a philosophy. It's a worldview that is antithetical to a Muslim belief, for example. Wow. So, so what does philosophy try to explain when that, whenever people, you know, hear or try to get into that type of a discussion, they tune out really fast because they get lost in terminology. Just the word philosophy makes their, you know, brain cells pop and they, they don't. I know Mahin was like telling me before this podcast started that he he was a philosophy major and uh, for like for, so yeah, Muhammad, I was a philosophy major at U Toronto for like a year. And I, you know, and I was like studying ancient. I was reading like Plato and like taking me like yeah. three hours to read like five pages of like, you know, because it's a Socrates and then going back and forth. And I'm like, what the heck is going on here? And my brain is just fried. You know what I mean? So, like, I, yeah, I'm not like I'm not the deep thinker that these guys are. That is the problem with philosophy. Philosophy stays in this abstract. It, it stays in this abstract realm that a lot of people don't really think about necessarily uh, or immediately. Uh, most people, when they, whenever you think wh about anything, you usually engage in lower level thinking that has some economic or practical output. So your thoughts are arranged in a way to interact with the world. When you abstract meanings from it and you speak in the abstract realm, the, the essences of things or whatever the case may be, or neoplatonic ideals or things like that, that is something that now you don't have a tangible thing to hold on to. It's partly the reason why mathematics, for example, is so difficult for most people. Most people are not mathematically inclined in that way to engage in. And I remember weeder courses in engineering are like calculus 102 or whatever. Like it's the hardest level thing where you go in and as, you know, 100 students and only 20 remain or 15 remain. It's because these concepts are just they're in the abstract realm. Numbers are not things that are tangible that you can hold on to. So you have to, inter to be able to entertain things that you can't touch, um, uh, concepts, philosophical concepts that you can't get a hold of, and they have a practical reality, uh, uh, practical applicability later, but you have to first organize them in your mind uh, before you get into that. And most people are just not wired that way. That's just not the way that they, they think about things. That's not your daily living experience. And so that's why it's hard for a lot of people to get into it and they shut off. And that's actually why a lot of philosophy is um, uh, disparaged by even scientists. Scientists are, people think of scientists as the highest, you know, intellectual figures in society. But if you look at the gradation of thought or the gradation of thinking abilities, scientists are actually on the lower part. They're not the highest intellectual part because they deal with the empirical world, the material existence, things that you can touch, as opposed to the very difficult task of thinking about things that you can't even get a hold of. So that's why philosophy is a problem. Generally speaking, though, philosophy is just about the, the importance of philosophy is that you're trying to um, um, 
they translate it as a love of wisdom, but the general goal of philosophy is to organize your thoughts in a way that is coherent. People confuse it for seeking of truth. You know, it's, it's mm. because we're looking for truth. You can't attain truth through philosophy. But was that the yes. intent behind philosophy? Was to, to, to find a truth, to find uh, our existence, to find, you know... These why? are the questions that it entertains. Mm -hmm. So there's, this is the difference. Philosophy entertains questions about existential uh, realities, being, what is all of this about? Um, what is the meaning of life? Uh, what is a good life? And then they seek and they say that we're pursuing the truth of these things. But if you uh, break it down and look into how are they arriving at these at answers to these things, much of philosophical activity is directed at making sure that your propositions and your, con uh, your conclusions are uh, uh, coherent along the lines of your assumptions and your thoughts are, it's almost like, uh, uh, it's like basically, uh, it's a meta use of logic. That's what philosophy is. It's you're trying to make sure that your thoughts are coherent so that when you make a, a claim or you come to a conclusion that you can back it up. You can argue through this is how I got to this conclusion. Yeah. You, I'm glad you said I, while you were saying that I was thinking about logic, why many uh, uh, of uh, of usul, uh, as far as usul fiqh is concerned, they, they want you to study logic, especially the Hanafis. They want you to study logic very well to understand, yeah. you know, the, the, the so logic is kind of the physical realm and philosophy, philosophy is kind of the metaphysical-ish uh, the metaphysical realm, of, realm of that it deals with, but there's a distinction between that and what let's say Muslims who engage in philosophy initially at the start were concerned with. So when you're talking about theology, you have taken metaphysical assumptions as true a priori to start off with. You're not questioning the truth of La ilaha illallah, for example. You're not questioning the truth of that the Prophet is the final messenger. You're not questioning the truth that this is revelation from Allah, the Quran, for example. So you have these assumptions already, and then you're trying to make your um, interaction with the world and the conclusions that you come, you come about coherent with those initial assumptions as well as with which, whatever you find, whatever you interact with. And that's what we refer to as baseless thought, right? Baseless so a lot of philosophy is baseless thought, baseless thought right now. Yes. Yeah, it's a lot of baseless thought. It's coherent in its own system, so I can break down somebody's arguments and yeah. and show that they're actually coherent with whatever assumptions that they've taken up. But then when I go back to the original assumptions that they've made, I have a problem because your initial assumptions are, let's say, for example, they're relative. They're not absolute things. Mm -hmm. They're not things that I can put trust in that this is true. And if your initial assumption, that's what Imam Fakhreddin al-Razi, when he said, ala batil batil, yeah. that's what he's talking about. He's talking about your initial assumption. If that initial assumption is false, you might have some correct things to say later on. Or in between but, the lines. Yeah. This whole thing, this whole system that you got built up is false. So recently I was watching a, a movie and a statement, a philosophical statement came uh, to being, and that was, uh, we are not defined by who we, or what, we are not defined by what we have done in the past, but what we are doing in the present. Is there a problem with that statement? There's um, a big problem with that statement. You're yeah. a continuation of your past actions. Um, there, this is, this is, again, the feel good kind of modern, um, Let's not uh, think about uh, how we got here. 
you, you did some stuff in, like the world, the way that Allah has unfolded the patterns in the world is, is such that things that you have done in the past have an impact on you now in some way. Yeah. Um, it's just, that's the way that it is. Uh, and that's where this whole, that actually negates a very long discussion with regards to, uh, regards to free will and determinism and, and whatnot. Um, determinism, which is just basically looking at the universe, the universe is unfolding in a way, there is a logic to it. I mean, if you're going to say that what you're doing at the present has nothing to do with your past, you've actually negated all of rational thought and inquiry because all of your rational thought is, and all of science all of it is based on an understanding that there is a repeatable pattern and there is a logic and a rationality to the universe that A follows, uh, B follows A and C follows B and things just happen in the sequence. Right. So I'm, there's, there's a difference, of course, between that and saying, do I want to take you into account for what you've done in the past? You know, and, and that's a different discussion to have. But are you a product of past events? Sure you are. This whole society, this whole culture right now, the, the culture that we're living in, these are unfoldings of previous events that have taken place. Um, like we mentioned earlier with regards to the discussions of the mind and human behavior and the way the science is conducted with regards to that. All of it is a byproduct, a direct byproduct of discussions and programs that were put in place, you know, 300 years ago. So... That statement is not, it's not supported by any evidence or by any even iota of thought. It's just a statement that makes you feel good. No, I'm glad you, you, I'm I'm really glad you brought that up because again, we we were discussing that every single one of us is a part of a philosophy or we're living uh, uh, somebody else's theory on philosophy, but we don't realize we're doing it. We don't realize we're a part of it. So even the rationale that we use as a nation or as a people or as as in in this generation this time that we're living in we may use a rationale and we may use a criterion or use that rationale i should say as a criterion to determine what's right and wrong but the question can be asked what if all of that was based on something that didn't have a a, a righteous or a good beginning and you've based all of your thought on that and what is right and wrong based on that right I'll give you an example of how dangerous this is yes. because this could actually how the Christian religion collapsed in the West and it's based on this. So I'll take you back in history a little bit. Scholastic theology. What is scholastic theology based on? How did they develop their scholasticism? You know, the school of scholasticism, right? Thomas Aquinas and, um, and, uh, all of these figures, what they've done was they tried to, um, they tried to square a circle literally. You know, when you hear about theologians trying to square a circle, yeah. I don't like that statement because we're not trying to make the irrational rational. Yes. But what the scholastics did was that what they've done was they looked at um, material science they, at their time, you know, findings. People had things to say about the world and how it functions, and they wanted to incorporate that with Christian theology. And that's kind of like the beginnings of this Christian apologetics. Look at what the scientists of the time are saying to you about the world. Come up with explanations to update your theology that go in line with these things. The problem with science is that it offers you ephemeral truths. Ephemeral meaning they're time bound. Um, they could they could be lasting. They could be real. Or new findings come up and they could change it. And that is why if you look at a lot of uh, and there's not a lot of it, but if you look at some of the commentaries of uh, some of the, like Ibn Ajiba and Bukhari and 
and um, um, others, I think Qurtubi as well in, the, in, uh, in his tafsir, Hakam al-Quran, some of the verses that talk about um, uh, uh, the creation and utilizing uh, material science, al-Taba'iyin is how they refer to them in the, in the, in the literature. Uh, we're talking about scientists trying to use that in theology. There was a resistance from Muslim scholars against that. And they said, these people are just speaking out of their own observations, but there is no basis to what they're saying to come in and try to impose that on our beliefs. Our beliefs are supposed to be built on absolute things. And these are ephemeral things that you're, you're observed, you've observed, you've come to a conclusion about, but I don't know if it's true or not. And if I want to base my belief on something that's true, I can't use that in my theology. So scholastics, utilize a lot of this material science that they had at the time to come up with this elaborate system of Christian theology. It worked out for a while until some of the findings were being put into question, brought into question. And then you had the Copernican revolution, you had Darwin come in. Um, a lot of things became uh, problematic. And every time they tried to incorporate or adjust in their theology, it just punched the hole instead they were they had a good intention there that they wanted to square you know like my experience of the world versus what the bible says about it and when they did that it worked for a while but as time progressed new people that are new generations coming up they're experiencing different things and then they started when it piles up to a degree where the scientific literature or findings at the time don't square anymore with what you're telling me from theology now i have to make a decision do I go with what the scientists are saying, or do I go with, I go with what you're saying as a scholastic theologian? At that point, it becomes a matter of uh, who's in power, who has the upper hand. When the church had the upper hand, they were burning people at the stake. As soon as they lost that power and the moderns, as they were called at the time, took power and got into the upper echelons of political avenues and whatnot, they started to basically marginalize the church and, mar and persecuted them, killed a bunch of people and got rid of them before they came back. And they had a back and forth at the time. But we know how history unfolded now. Now belief is looked as ridiculous. This is uh, not based on reality. Your beliefs are false. We can't. And But it started off with religious people trying to square uh, what scientists are saying to them and using concepts that the scientists are coming up with to square it with theology. And so you're using this terminology and you're building this edifice and all it needed was somebody to come in and basically throw a wrench in that program and say, ah, this doesn't work anymore. We have to come up with something new. Okay. So that's, that's the problem with this stuff. Right. Muhammad, do you think the fallacy is really in the sense that you're, you're playing two different, you're mixing science, which is the issue of empiricism and the tangible things of the world versus philosophy or religion, which are more maybe metaphysical based. Is that part of the issue? You think that that's, they got caught in that trick bag and it ended up biting them in their rear end. So uh, when you say philosophy, I have to distinguish something with regards to metaphysics because not everybody agrees that metaphysics is relating to um, theological issues. Uh, metaphysics could be just something beyond physics. In other words, um, I think it was because I when I was talking to Sim uh, uh, on text messages there. I think it was a Farabi. Yeah, I think it was a Farabi that said that metaphysics did not deal with uh, religious things, with theological things. To him, metaphysics they were still part of the world because they still dealt with being. So, do you say dealt with being? 
with being, being in the sense of like created things. Okay. Yes. So that's what he was, his, his issue with that was he wasn't buying the distinction that the Greeks did at the, at the start. Um, but the, the problem with the mixing of stuff is, and that's why I think philosophy is important. And, 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 cause you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And that wisdom is the lost property of the believer, as the Prophet said. And wherever you find it, you have more right to it. So when it comes to philosophy, the good thing about philosophy, if you study it after, and this is really crucial. I asked Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayya, I think it was seven years ago when I first got into all of this stuff. And I, I, I told him I had a really deep interest in this stuff. And he just said to me, uh, it's fine. وَلَكِنْ خُدْ حَذَرَكَ you know, be careful because it's filled with a lot of kufr in it. That's all I'm going to tell you. And when you begin with this thing, just make sure that you have a solid theological grounding with regards to your belief and you have a solid grounding in logic and an understanding of what logic serves. If you don't understand what the function is of logic, you're going to sub subvert your religious beliefs for conclusions you come out of philosophy thinking that your intellect has led you to them and they're somehow true. So when you look at philosophy and why it's important, you will start to recognize when is science route. There, there's a question that I still tackle with and I think about all the time. At what point does science have a role to play in informing your, um, let's say, interaction with religion? Not your religious beliefs, but your interaction with religion. Uh, what role? What, what is the role of science in that? It has a limitation. I don't know where it is. Because the fact is, the world is a creation of Allah's and the world has, it's a manifestation of kun. It's a manifestation of a word of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it has this divine aspect to it in the same way that the Quran is kalamullah, that this is it's just a different manifestation of the word. So how do I take that manifestation of the word and let it inform my interaction with the religion itself? There's a line. Of course. I don't know where that line is, but you don't mix it. You have to distinguish between theology and jurisprudence. And you have to distinguish between when it comes to theology, what is speculative and what is absolute. This is like, there's no discussions about this. So when you don't study philosophy, you start to have a lot of, um, let's say, call it just errors in thought, because your thinking will be incoherent and you'll start to make a kind of a mixed hodgepodge of beliefs that if you try to break them down, you find that there's a lot of inconsistencies with what you're claiming. So in, in the beginning of when philosophy was coming into fruition or how we understand philosophy today, uh, there were people like Socrates and Plato, and they were all ascribing meaning to our lives, right? And all that meaning, that meaning would be coming from a, a center. The word center was, was always uh, used in terms of uh, how we define good and evil and everyone yeah. would use that and the reference point to that would always be God right but then uh, the existentialist came into play right the existentialist mm -hmm. said forget God just think about yourself right the self is uh the more, determining factor. Yeah, yeah. It, the it's determiner. It's the, yeah, use the, the self as the the, uh, the focal point or the, the way you interact with the world around you. They, or they, you can they say they center, of, which you were saying center. Cause yeah. Would that make sense? Like, the, the, use right. yourself as being the center? Right. So, I think they, they just, <laughs> they, they said the mortal self would be the most important uh, 
um, way to ascribe your relationship with the reality. Is, does that that arose, sense? interestingly enough, if you look at the, the context in which all of this arose, um, it came about with confusion regarding religious beliefs and all of the different sects that arose and competing ideologies that came about. Whenever you had all of these different competing ideologies come into play, um, the sub, uh, it, it, it called into question the idea of an absolute objective truth that could come from a metaphysical belief system. And I'm gonna, I'm, I know I'm using metaphysics again in an interchangeable way, but just let's use it in a religious connotation that, you know, the Catholic Church was uh, the, dictating what is true, but then you had all of these different groups that arose in the Protestant Reformation and all of this development with existentialism and philosophy in the West specifically arose in that environment. And part of the rejection of God came about from, it's not so much that people differed in their beliefs, it's that they were using politics and using uh, military force to go after each other for having different beliefs. And so there was a, an immediate urgency to, I need, we need to figure this out before we all kill each other. And one of the solutions to it was, we need to do away with the belief in anything absolute regarding religion, because if we did, each group is claiming to be the beholder of absolute truth and is going after the rest of us. So if we want to have a civilization where we live amongst each other and have some safety and security, we need to maintain that, you know what, this might be your position, this is your belief, but keep that at home. You can no longer share that with everybody else as an objective thing that we can go back to. We don't share that anymore. So, okay, when we go after them, we need the, the purpose of philosophy. You look into philosophy literature from the very early on. What is that before, even when they were talking about God and after they were talking about God, there is one goal that they have in philosophy, which is what is known as uh, what Aristotle called eudaimonia or eudomania or something like that. It's happy. It's flourishing. Eudomania. It's um, eudaimonia. It's um, uh, to flourish. Your goal, according to philosophy, is to have flourishing. What does it mean to flourish? That's where you have the different philosophical schools. What is the pursuit of happiness, in other words? That's, That's where you have people that will talk about the self. We'll, you have others will say, no, it's with communion with God. And you'll have all these different people coming up and saying these things. So um, with the rejection of an absolute um, foundation for what is true, now what is going to be the foundation that we go with with regards to flourishing? Well, the one that works out is really down to the self and what we find pleasurable in life and what will bring the most benefit and ward off the most harm. So how do we come to, to agree upon that? Well, now we're going to talk about human beings as animals, what is going to be the most beneficial thing for us, make sure that we have food, we have shelter, uh, we can pursue wealth, we can, we can pursue sex, we can pursue just the pleasures of life because that's something that we can all agree upon. It's basically let's descend into the into the lowest common denominator. I see, and that's that's what philosophy now is serving for everybody that's dealing in philosophy. Their ultimate goal is that because there's no more God in the equation. And and that's what like uh, um, the postmodernists did too. They said, uh, you know, like as we talked about earlier with the center, they said forget about the center. There is no center because the, the existentialist said. The self is the center. They said, yeah, let's well, refer back to the, the postmodernist said, forget about the center. There is no meaning to anything. Uh, yeah. Everything is 
experiential. So can you like expand on that? So just uh, for the listeners, uh, like when we say postmodernism, and what we're talking about. So you just have uh, it, to understand what postmodernism is, and you know you hear names like Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida and all of these people. Um, what what is the development of that? This is really uh, uh, I, I like to the way that I would describe postmodernism. It's the uh, legitimate yet bastard child of modernism and Enlightenment Europe. Um, it is the logical consequence of rejecting an absolute foundation for what is true and what is not and what is good and what is not. Um, it's very hard to define it. And that's actually part of, and that tells you something about what postmodernism is. You can try to go find in the dictionary some definitions, but if you go in the philosophy literature, they don't agree with each other. Like, what is postmodernism? And that actually tells you something about the concept itself and what it stands for. It's very contradictory. You're right about it's that. It's contradictory, and there's no single definition that can encompass it. And even the philosophers within it, they all dislike and disapprove of isms and being grouped together in one type of school or such thing like that. So you'll have philosophers that will write about them. But if you go and ask them and, and try to have a discussion about it, it's like, no, no, I'm not like, so Derrida will say, no, no, I got nothing to do with Foucault. But it's kind of the same program. It's the same system. And what underlies the differences between all of them is a single unifying belief, which is what you were mentioning, that there is, it's just a self. Your subjective experience of the world is the, is the foundation upon which any judgment is to be made. There is no objective authoritative validity to anything other than your subjective self. And to top it off, it's from this you get this notion of like structures of thought that determine narratives that draw their power from. Like, let's take an example, just with regards to words. You know, you hear a lot of words like feminism and patriarchy, right? Right. These words are postmodernist words. You are a postmodernist if you're going to speak in terms of feminism and patriarchy, because in a postmodernist sense, you have you have this uh, uh, structure of uh, and institutions of belief systems, and there is no truth to any of them. Any claims that come out of any system or anybody that makes it, these claims are not based on any belief in absolute foundation. They are a byproduct of a system that was designed to produce these things necessarily. So is they're not true. Look, sorry, yeah, you said they're not true. Sorry to cut you off. So is it safe to say that they're a byproduct or an offshoot of ideas that were baseless because there was no definitive or there was no universally understood fact uh, that this philosophy was built upon? Right? So the, yeah, well, the philosophy is built upon that's the, that's one of the contradictions. Like uh, Jürgen Habermas's um, biggest criticism of postmodernism in general is that you're assuming truth when you make all of these statements. You're assuming that what your your analysis is true. You're assuming that you're an objective observer, di you know, dividing all of these things up and and showing us where they where the error lies. But what they're saying is that let's take Islam for example. If I'm a Muslim who is a postmodernist and I don't know it. How would I approach the tradition? The way you would approach the, tra uh, the traditional way of approaching scholarly texts will assume that the authority of the rulings and interpretations um, uh, that the scholars will put forth, they're all dependent on factors that relate to the authority, to the educational pedigree and pure testimonials. So if I'm going to read a book by Imam, let's say, Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, 
why do I believe what he says is true? And why do I trust his conclusions about it? Why should I trust Sheikh Ad-Dardir, for example, that the Maliki rulings that he provides forth, these are authoritative. This is what you go with for the Maliki school. Why should I believe that? It's because of his educational pedigree. It's because of his peer testimonials. It's because this book has gained acceptance. So you have, you have these almost objective measures in a way that there is, there's a logic to why we believe that this is true. It's focused on the logic and the coherence of the text, in other words. Historical and, and cultural context will play a role in that, where you can say, like, for example, when I wrote, I wrote a piece uh, for Muftah on Ibn Taymiyyah, and I was talking about how Ibn Taymiyyah, some of the things that he wrote about when it comes to his understanding of what it means to resist and uh, his positioning specifically with, with uh, extremist groups and why he's so attractive, you have to go look into his historical context. You know, the fact that he was a child of refugees, that there was all of these invasions going on. There's a lot of historical parallels that you can draw from and to see and just the type of personality that he was and how he was positioned as a scholar and as an activist at the same time. And so you bring in all of these different things to inform how did he come up to some of the conclusions that he came about, but you don't completely negate everything that he did and say that it's all a byproduct of the specific history and context that he was in, because definitely speaking, some of the things that he came up with were a byproduct of study that this is what the Quran says. This is what the Hadith says. And this is a conclusion you can draw from it. And that's it. That, that's all there is to it. And there's these differences that based on these linguistic differences of opinion about how to interpret this or that, but they don't bring into, into a culture and context in an overbearing way. A postmodernist approach to the tradition, so this is really for, you see this a lot when it comes to especially Muslim activists today. They don't allow the logical structure to rise to the level even to be dismissed. There is no discussion of the logical structure. I'll give you an example, the hijab. The hijab, it's, it's really curious, it's a curious fact that, and just a caveat, I'm not judging Muslim sisters who are not wearing the hijab in a way that I'm thinking that I'm higher than them or anything like that. Uh, I'm not saying that you are a terrible Muslim for not wearing the hijab. I'm not saying any of that, just a caveat. But I want to turn your attention to one thing. Muslim women who come in and question the hijab, and even some of the rising so-called feminist men that question the hijab, I find it really odd that for whatever reason, there is no mention of the Quran in any of their analyses. It's always about what the Arabs were doing, what Muslim women were experiencing at the time. And by conclusion, this is why the Prophet ﷺ told them to cover up. It's, it's a really odd thing to not have any mention whatsoever of what Allah says in Surah An-Nur, what Allah says in Surah Al-Ahzab, and how these words are to be interpreted. And when you say that, when people say the hijab is not wajib, I'm like, yeah, it's not wajib, it's actually fault. Because Allah says in Surah An-Nur, Suratun anzalnaha wa faradnaha. And then in the Surah, He says, this is a Surah that we've revealed and we have made obligatory. And then in the Surah, He mentions about covering up. So it's not a wajib, it's a fard. It's even higher than that. But never mind that. That's a postmodernist approach. Don't bring the text. Don't bring the logical structure of it. Don't talk about the Arabic language. Don't talk about any of this stuff. Just simply ignore it. Don't even dismiss it. Ignore it. Don't bring it up. And just approach the text with the assumption that anything that is going to come out of it, any conclusions that people have made with regards to Islamic rulings, these are necessary byproducts of social power dynamics. 
the type of which that we're most concerned with in this particular example would be patriarchy. This is just men trying to control women. And so you have the situation of now you have these memes and these cartoons that people draw and say, uh, let's say a book titled what men can tell women about the hijab. And then the next picture I saw was the book is open and it's blank pages. And ha 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 ha. It's so funny. <laughs> so men shouldn't say anything. It's great. But the thing is, push that, push that argument to the logical, you know, this is why philosophy is important. One of the activities you do in philosophy is reductio ad absurdum. Reduce something to the absurd extreme end to see if it still withstands scrutiny. So if I say that men cannot tell women anything, Muslim men cannot discuss women issues whatsoever and cannot tell them anything about Islamic rulings related to what women are to be like. Let's just say that. Push that to the extreme end. It's logical end. Yeah. What's the logical end of that? I can't tell my daughters any. I can't tell them like more than that. Not just you. More than that. Go more. More extreme. Muslim men. If you're a man in Islam, you cannot tell women anything. I, I can't like forbid my woman, my wife, from having having sex with another Beyond man. Beyond you. Beyond you. Beyond me. Beyond me. All yeah. right. Um. More extreme. Go to the most extreme end that you can go. To the Prophet, or I mean, yeah, yeah, that the Prophet ﷺ cannot tell you anything because you're a woman, and he has not, he's not being him, not being a woman, he doesn't understand what it's like being a woman, and because he comes from a patriarchal society, he doesn't understand the plight of women, so he can't really say anything authoritative to you because he's a man, and so he, by definition, his identity as a man excludes him from being able to comment on anything related to Muslim women. Oh, wow. wow. I think uh, Dr. Yan just blew up feminism right now. <laughs> Sorry, feminist Muslims. <laughs> no, <laughs> we're talking about the feminist what? men, first off. <laughs> you guys. I'm not trying to say that um, there are no uh, abuses that there are no problems that Muslim women have, that certainly there is transgressions by Muslim men. I'm not saying, I'm not denying any of this stuff. What I'm having a problem with now is the rise of this postmodernist notion of, the, uh, of elevating the subjective experience to such a degree that you negate any authoritative statements even coming from the Prophet ﷺ. Exactly. And you know, there's one thing I want to chime in on, is that this leads us to a very dangerous situation where Someone who has a position based on sacred text now is considered somebody who's very extreme and he doesn't, they're not with society anymore and we're way mm -hmm. past that, right? So if somebody holds a position based on what their creator says, this person, this person, you shouldn't even, you know, uh, associate any, uh, you know, uh, uh, thought provoking ideas uh, with them. You know, and uh, that's why it's now, it's kind of dangerous having, holding a position. Having a position on something is looked down upon, right? And I always found that pretty crazy, is that you're not supposed to have a position on something, and that's, what, that's how everyone stays happy if you don't have a position. There's no right and wrong. Uh, a principled position, you mean? Principled position, thank you. Right. We live in an age of feelings. This is the age of feelings. This is the age when um, the ethical thing, like feelings, like, you know what, you get up, like when I got up on, on Friday, this past Friday, when I woke up, I was like, ah, I'm not feeling too good today. I'm not, you know, and I, and even in my subah prayer, you know, in the Maliki school, uh, after the end of the surah and the second rak'ah, you do the qunut and then you do the ruku'ah. Yeah. I went into ruku'ah before doing the qunut. I'm like, ah, oh, this is a bad day now. Like I, I missed the qunut before the ruku'ah. I'm going to do it after the ruku'ah. This is not, 
So my feelings that day were not feeling too hot. So my reaction to the world and any statements anybody would have said to me would have been some way. And then I got up today and I'm like, this is a good day. I'm going to be on the Madden Luke's. So, <laughs> mashallah. So I'm feeling good. I'm feeling happy. And so today you can say anything to me and it'd be very difficult for you to really get under my skin. So this age of feeling of like, I don't want to offend you because I, I, you know, I need to take care. I need to coddle you as much as possible so that your feelings are not hurt by whatever I'm going to say. You know what? You've actually negated any role that any prophet would have had in any society whatsoever. I mean, when it comes to the age of feelings, Quraysh were trying to come at the Prophet with that. You know, why don't you like taper, you know, calm down a little bit. You know, don't make people, you know, this la ilaha illallah business, it's offending a lot of people. Yep. You know, it's breaking some families and stuff. And it's like, oh, you're right, guys. I'm sorry. The harmony of society is not going to be uh, sustained if I keep continuing on with this business about your idols. Go ahead. Continue doing whatever you're doing. And I'm just going to, you know, lay low and, and not talk about it unless people want to come and ask me, you know, and then I'll tell them very gently about this stuff. There is a role for decorum and, and being nice and being courteous and, and you, and approaching things with nuance and acknowledging, you know, I'll acknowledge your experience. I'll be really, you know, I'll, I'll try to be empathetic as much as possible, but at least in medicine, they tell you, you want to be empathetic in medicine, but you don't want to be sympathetic. You want to be empathetic to the degree of you show the patient that I understand the predicament that you're going through. I have an appreciation of you, of you having an emotional reaction to some bad news that I, I, I just gave you. But if I have sympathy for you in the way that I start to feel your feelings, then my job is going to be jeopardized. Hmm. That's why they tell you, for example, um, it's uh, depending on where you are, you should not be the personal GP of um, for family. You should not be the family physician for your own family. General practitioner okay, family, I got you. Yeah. All right. You should not be, you should not operate on your own daughter, for example. If you're a surgeon and your daughter needs a surgery, even if you're the top surgeon in the world, you don't get to operate on your daughter because your feelings are going to get in the way and you're not going to be able to do what you need to do for her. So you go on and get the other surgeon to do it for you because that person is going to be more objectively removed and able to treat your daughter. So feelings are, are, I, you, it's good to have them to a degree and acknowledge them and, and accept, you know, that there's, these are real things that influence how people be, behave and believe and think and react to things. But there's got to be a limit to uh, like, to and, what degree are you going to acknowledge these things? And you have to be able to realize that feelings are a double-edged sword and it can be your enemy or it can be your friend, right? And it takes that type of maturity and that understanding, especially your relationship with your creator, to understand, okay, my feelings are going to get in the way over here. I'm not going to do this. Or I need someone else to take care of this for me. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Exactly. So, Mohammed, exactly. I have a question related to something you just said. I'm, like, writing some notes down, and I'm like, I want to catch some points here uh, for the benefit of our listeners. I think – so, we had mentioned that one of the um, – the whole thing was if – you know, people started rejecting this concept of absolute truth, right, um, mm -hmm. in the Western countries. So does that mean that whether it was right or not, that they themselves, the Christian nations, established a uniform, like, theology that they, you know, w whether as a Catholic church or whatnot, that they, uh, whether it was right or not, they just said this is the absolute truth. And then later as that broke apart, that's kind of um, 
what led to uh, this post this postmodernist ideology? The problem with what they did was um, when they started to break apart, there was these attempts. I mean, if you want to trace postmodernism to its uh, origins, um, people talk about Nietzsche a lot, and then uh, Foucault and the French thinkers and whatnot. But even before that, it was Kant. Immanuel Kant was the one who was trying to. It actually, it's it's so interesting that a lot of what we see today is a direct byproduct of religious people that had really good intentions that tried to preserve some things from religious beliefs um, so people can have them. The problem with what the church did, especially with scholastic theology, um, when you, and this is a problem I see today as well, by the way, because I get a lot of messages from young Muslims that have a lot of problems with uh, the relationship uh, relationship between science and religion. And um, um, what they see is they go through college, you know, they go through and they get their even sometimes advanced uh, PhD levels. And they see things that, that are irreconcilable. They were told by their imams and their Muslim scholars some things about the world. And again, by best of intentions, you're trying to assert to people that this is Allah's creation. And look what Allah says in the Quran about this. And look what Allah says about that. And look at this hadith and look at that hadith. And then they go through university and they find out, ah, that doesn't really square with what they're, they're being taught now. So... Muslim scholars engaged in a bit of scholastic theology in that way, in an indirect way. And that creates a problem for modern Muslims now, for young Muslims. So what the church did at the time was they, they it was more systemized. You had elevated your knowledge or your perception of what you see in the material world to a degree that you can now derive absolute, what you believe to be absolute truths from. As that broke down and as more, and as you as it was breaking down, you used force to try to quell this dissent and to try to silence voices that were uh, rising up against it. You create this ricochet type of effect. Uh, every extreme action generates an extreme reaction uh, uh, in response. And so as that broke down, you have the response against it breaking down. And then in the middle, you had these scholars like Immanuel Kant, who was a believer. He was trying to come up with, how do I preserve belief in the soul, let's say? How do I preserve belief in God? The way he did it was kind of, it's, 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 it was a double-edged sword. What he said was, the, in the Critique of Pure Reason, which is a very difficult text to get through. It's one of the most difficult philosophy texts that anyone can go through. Um, what he, the conclusion of it, one of the main conclusions of it is that human reason cannot get to the essence of things like the soul and things like God. And he extended that though. The problem that he did here was he extended it. So in the Quran we say, They ask you about the soul, the ruh. They tell, tell them that it is from the command of my Lord and you have not been given of knowledge except very little. And then they ask, uh, and when it comes to Allah, that there's nothing like unto him. So you have these concepts in the Quran that tell you there is nothing like Allah. You cannot get to the essence of what Allah is and what the soul is. These are things that are beyond your ability to comprehend and contemplate on. So how do you study them? How do you understand them? You understand Allah through attributes. You understand the soul through how it manifests itself in the world. Now, <clears throat> Immanuel Kant extended that and he said, you know what, and everything else, in fact, in the world, you cannot get to the essence of it. All you can get to is the accidents of it. 
the way that it comes together and puts together and its interactions in the environment, and that's all you can know about it. But you cannot get to the essence of anything in existence. That is actually the seed for postmodernism, for postmodernist thought. That you cannot get to the true essence, reality, truth about anything. So from that, and he was a religious person, just like his religious predecessors that were trying as much as they can to preserve these concepts, but the foundation of their belief was problematic because they tried to create this relationship of elevating your empirical experience, which is so flawed. We know now just from a lot of neuroscience that you can't really trust your perceptions that much and you can't trust your memory even. You have elevated this thing to a position of supreme supremacy that now you can derive absolute truth from it. Well, within 10 years, 20 years, things change. Now that breaks down, you've broken down the religion. You've broken down the belief. And when you break down that belief, that is the absolute foundation that all of civilizations have had. Um, and the only time they collapse is when they negate it. They say that this has nothing to do with us and we can now just basically pursue our pleasures. And if you look at all civilizations, it's really fascinating to look at the decline of any civilization. It was always preceded by some form of uh, hedonism, rejection of absolute truths and authority and just hedonistic thought. I see. Okay, so like just as a timeline here, the Christian world had at some point established what they called absolute truth. And at the time, the church yeah. dominated. Church at the time, and it was in control. Right. And then anything, anyone who was brought heretical views were pretty much burned at the stake, right? Yeah. At, so, at the point when the state began to overturn and you had more sectarianism, then people like yeah. Kant and Aquinas trying to save the faith, you know, brought in these these ideas and that eventually kind of led to the downfall right it just leads to the downfall of it yeah. like uh, i'll give you another example of uh, another more practical example of how religion could be subverted to materialist um goals of a state um i think it was the benedictine monks in the 1500s they had uh, introduced the clock um, in churches. And the reason for it was they wanted to organize. They had seven times of observance in the church, seven times of prayer observance. So the, to organize their day so that they can observe, they introduced this clock. And that was the initial intent of it. It was a high ideal. They want to organize their spiritual relationship and their activities so that they don't miss anything. When the state took over, I think it was the French king at the time, or the French emperor, he actually took that clock and he's he utilized it during the Industrial Revolution towards uh, material uh, means. And so the church itself now became subservient to the state's material goals. And so they had to organize their prayers around economic functions of the state. So the thing that started off as this is a positive thing that we can organize our religious rituals with got taken up by the state and utilize, and they just went along with it. It's not like there was much resistance about this. They just went along with it and they started to basically behave and let the state take over the reins. An example of that can be seen in modern Muslim life. Right now, um, I can tell you in Canada, for example, one of the first things that I was taught was how to figure out the prayer using the shadows. If you go ask any average Muslim today, can you just tell me how do you determine the prayer if you did not have an app on your phone? Most Muslims won't know how. They don't know. I don't know how to determine this. And when I went ahead and did it in the summertime, 
If you look at the prayer app in Vancouver, it tells you like uh, Islamic Finder. It will tell you Duhur enters at, let's say, 111 or 113 or whatever. When I went and measured the shadow and we did it in different places and several people did it. Um, I think six or seven of us uh, t- total trials came out. On average, Dhuhr, Zawal does not actually enter until about 147. So if you prayed Dhuhr at 111 or 113 or whenever the app told you, that is praying before the time. Now I ask about this, like what, what's the problem with this? Well, that is a prayer that is unaccepted because one of the shurut of the prayer is Dhuhr al-Waqt. One of the conditions of the prayer that the time enters. So you ask like an average imam about this and they'll tell you, yeah, but you know, uh, mistake and forgetfulness is not that my ummah is not taken for it well when I asked my teacher about this he's like this is a farlain, your prayer like this is not a communal obligation you need to confirm that your prayer is going to be valid this is not going to be upon the community this is for you you need to determine make sure that this prayer is valid so when we went ahead and did that we found out that the masjid is praying at 1.30 they're holding the, the call, calling the iqamah at 1.30 but the actual zawal doesn't start at 1.47 and then when you go and pursue this further, like what's the deal with this app and the clock and p- keeping time in this way? And you're so strict about it to the point of even Ramadan. As soon as that clock hits, whatever that prayer app time says, people don't look outside into the sun to see did it actually set or not. My phone told me so. So therefore, I'm going to break my fast. Well, what if you broke your fast before the sun has actually set properly? Is that a valid fast? You've just elevated this technological thing that is supposed to be facilitating. You're supposed to be using it to help you organize yourself, but it is not going to be your judge over you to determine your religion for you. So Muslims have actually, you see, when you look at the development, the historical development or the decline of Christianity in the West and the the factors that were involved in it and how it, it played itself out eventually, and you look at what we as a Muslim community are doing today, there are a lot of parallels. And... I hate historical essentialism where you basically say that just because it happened over there, it definitely will happen over here. I don't like that. But those who don't read their history are, are bound to repeat it. And when you see the Christians have gone through all of these different things and we're doing exactly step by step exactly what they're doing, why should you not expect that we're going to end up in the same position? Yeah. Right. Especially you, you're not even talking about the spiritual connotations of like, first of all, the amount of Muslims in North America, like percentage of them that actually pray five salah is a minority, yeah. right? And then for those guys, if they're following like wrong prayer times, because based on, and that's just the, uh, I know Sheikh Amin was talking about this. Sheikh Amin, like, I don't know, Dr. McGlan, we have uh, Sheikh Amin mm-hmm. Kowadi is one of our major scholars in Chicago. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but he talks about this, like how. Like, he attributes a lot of the issues the Ummah's going through is, like, basic stuff like us not, like, having proper wudu or istinja and praying at the wrong times. You, you know, a lot of philosophers are actually de- debating that, that, you know, we're building so much on uh, so much technology based on uh, knowledge that will eventually be lost. And, God forbid, some kind of cataclysmic event happens Many of yeah. the foundational knowledge that we've acquired over time will be lost and we won't be able to even, it'll take so much longer to build society back up to where it was. Mm-hmm. And, and while you were mentioning that as, as far as the, you know, the Christian faith, depending upon certain things to uh, take them away from their faith, you know, eventually, <clears throat> while you're mentioning that, <clears throat> excuse me, um, 
one thing that we realize about the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that it the, the simplicity in this deen is that if you if you really want to have a relationship with your creator you have to all you have to do is step outside of your home and see how bright it is outside mm-hmm. right it's that simple mm-hmm. i want to know if it's time for me to worship my creator let me just look at let me look in the sky for my next prayer just let me look at the ground let me see where what a shadow looks like right now let me see how far the sun is gone now let me see if the redness is completely gone and it's completely pitch dark now right and yeah. even even people who say that you know you got you know build a relationship with nature now this deen is so beautiful that you're going to build your relationship with nature and Allah at the same time and it'll strengthen your relationship yeah. with the creator you don't need anything else right and you know i remember sim was mentioning the whole in the whole event of solar flares and you know technology being wiped out and, you know to a certain degree if that was to happen you know these uh, human beings for a time and there will be a time where they're going to have to just look up in the sky to see if it's time for them to communicate with their creator again right that's what it's going to come down to you know yeah. it, it's actually that simple you know there's no I mean, need I, for any philosophy like, there's no need for anything all you got to do is look up in the sky and you know if you got to worship your creator that's it i i can tell you that uh, people who are really connected with nature their spiritual state is different and i get an inkling of that i got a touch of that when I have the time and I'm not just busy with like, just being indoors because that's how we do a lot of things, just indoors. But yeah. when it's like holidays and breaks and stuff when we're outside, to be able to look outside and just say like, when people say like, Dora entered and then you look up, I was like, no, it didn't. Yeah. So like, how do you know? The app says, I'm like, I know it didn't. I know where the sun needs to be. The Dora did not enter. And when you read the Quran itself, you know, like um, uh, when Allah says in Surah Al-Furqan, Alam tara ila rabbika kayfa you know, when you recite the verses, like, uh, do you not see how your Lord have extend, has extended the shadow? And had he wanted, he would have made it stand still. Like, when I read that verse, when I recite that verse now, and when I, when I, I remember, I remember the experience that I have every time I go and I measure the shadow and look at it. And then when you know, like, I know now that with certainty that Lord has actually entered. And then you go and you perform your wudu properly. All of these are acts of worship that we're not doing. And then we go and we, you know, in, in, in Sudan, we say, he's just trying to like wrap it up really quickly and just get it done. You know, just do it quickly and finish it and then go on and, and do the, and, and get back into the rat race. And then you go and you read some snippets of this and that, and then you engage in some activism work um, where you utilize concepts that you don't know where they came from. You just come up and you know that, but do you know that they make you feel good? Because the things that they're calling to, they're noble concepts. When people talk about justice, fairness, you know, equal opportunity and things like that, these are things that resonate with your fitrah because these are built within you. Like, of course we want justice. Allah's name is the just. And of course we want that. Uh, we want equal opportunity. You want to bar people just based on their race because as the Prophet said, you know, so you utilize these. So what, you, what do you do then? You're utilizing concepts your basis are concepts that are rooted in postmodernist ideals and then you're subjecting islamic concepts to them so that you can come across like this religion is really the postmodernist this it is the postmodernist religion join islam the religion of the liberal left you know what i mean i don't know if, if, if you've ever encountered anyone like this uh people who are nihilist and muslim at the same time they're like oh you know what this whole world is temporary we're going to die 
soon and what, what why worry about anything you know so you you hear even nihilism coming back into play like even among um you know young muslims and how they're they're viewing their relationship with the world around them they're like well oh, you know we're gonna die and everything is temporary so why worry about anything yeah can you define that real quick sim well or? so nihilism is that is exactly that they they say that we're we're gonna die soon and all of our experiences and happiness and everything is is temporary so why worry about anything what was that book in high school we had to read that was talked about that? Uh, like The Stranger, maybe, the, by yeah. Albert Camus. But that's more existentialism, Camus? right? Camus. Albert Camus. Uh, yeah. That was... Uh, he uh, yeah, was the founder was the... of, like... Wasn't he a big existential philosopher, Dr. Gilan? I think so. Albert yeah. Camus. Uh, Albert, my familiarity, if I'm I, thinking of the same person, yeah, yeah. Um, did he write something about crime and punishment? That's Dostoevsky, isn't it? No, no. There's another book. It's more law. It's more legal, though. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you see, like, uh, philosophical thought. Uh, I know, like, when I was in high school, I and the way I was trying to understand my role in in the world and my relationship with things around me, I was, you know, reading uh, Albert Camus at that point, and uh, it was way more of a, a centrist or uh, an existential approach to the world around me. So. I don't know. Did you have you come across any young Muslims who are you know trying to make sense of things like that? Strain yet, but I'm sure they're coming up. Yeah. And it's it's a logical consequence of again when you human beings need an anchor, they just have to have an anchor, and you see it. You see that they you see this need manifesting itself in the way that uh, let's say those that uh, reject Islam, you know these ex-Muslims, what do they do? They make their anchor science, and their prophets become Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and the likes. Right. And these are, you know, so these, and, and uh, what's that uh, skeptic magazine guy, Shatner, what is his name? Um, Michael, Michael Schenk. Ah. So, so, yeah, so these become their prophets, and these become their, and Neil deGrasse Tyson and whatnot. So these become the scholars that they listen to, and the anchor becomes science. Right. And so that's what they go with. Well, um, I'm you just have. Kind of I'm just talking to just regular Muslims about Syria and, you know, Yemen and our responsibilities and our obligations towards, you know, the greater Muslim world. And, you know, it's just like a, a resigned attitude that I'm seeing, just like, oh, you know, things will sort itself out or, you know, yeah, I mean, it's it's terrible what's happening over there, but, you know, yeah. um, things will take care of itself, you know, don't worry about it. I don't know, like, I mean, these are attitudes that are coming from the, these philosophies, you know? I don't know if it's nihilism for them, or it's, um, you've been subjected to so much bombardment from the news and the images that you become indifferent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that feel of ummah, that when we were growing up, you know, that that's completely gone. I don't, I don't sense that feel, that love that Muslims have for other, for, for Muslims overseas, you know, it just... I know it's just a seed that's between us, you know. And well, it, it is partly because of postmodernism too, because people over here in the West, they feel they're a victim. Yeah, they're a victim of everything of Islamophobia, racism, you know, all this, yeah. all these different labels they've put themselves under. They're like, oh, we're victims over here. You know, who's worried about us? Yeah, well, so, at the same yeah. time, to be like, if you talk to people who have visited, like a friend of mine has been on these medical missions where he's gone to Palestine and whatnot. 
And, yeah. you know, he, he was telling me the other day, he was he asked a Palestinian, and my friend's Hyderabadi. And so yeah. he, and they were in Amman, and he was with a Palestinian guy. And he was like, so what do you guys think, the Palestinians, what do you guys think about the rest of the Muslim world? He said, the rest of the Muslim world? We are the Muslim world. Know. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, like, yeah. I, I think it goes both ways. I, I, I think it's like the state of it, – it's a worldwide phenomenon. There's different causes for it everywhere, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, for example, in Bangladesh, it's about, like, nationalism, right, is yeah. an example. Yeah. Like, nationalism, they're, like, hardcore nationalists there. So, therefore, they don't care about what's going on. Like, for example, that's why uh, the prime minister of Bangladesh can say about the Burmese folks, like, well, that's not my problem. Yeah. yeah, you know what I, know I mean? What you mean. Yeah, yeah. And then in America, it could be like that. And so there, there. I think it's very few and far between people that you know. And that's what Sheikh Amr was just saying that like this concept of ummah is lost. And it reminds me of the Hadith of Prophet ﷺ where he talks about there will come a time when the disbelievers will take from the lands of the Muslims, like a guest take from the the food plate of the hosts. And it's because yeah. of the that the Muslim that the ummah will be wide in number, but it'd be like the scum or the foam. At the top of the of, of the seawater, right? So that's just, and it all starts you know. at the individual, though. I like, you know, one of the criticisms against Imam Al Ghazali was, well, how come he never said anything about Jerusalem? I mean, he even went over there and he saw that the Crusaders taken over and stuff. Nothing in his writings about Jerusalem. That's true. Yeah. It's because he saw a deeper problem. Like when you start to recognize that like this is a an emphatic very assertive not open to interpretation statement verse in the quran that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not going to change the conditions i.e the external conditions of a collective people until they start changing what's within themselves as individuals so there is a collective problem in that, like when I see the rise of all of these different um, rulers that, I mean, I could speak from personal experience as well as just because um, having worked as an imam for a while and, and observed this happening with multiple families, what I see in the Muslim world with regards to rulers, the ones that rise to the top, as well as in the West even, and just see like who, which figures, what type of figures make it to the highest office in the land. This is just a manifestation of what's happening in the home. Exactly. Yeah, 100% on on point because that that is I mean people want to say oh the, the, those rulers are terrible and you know why did why do we have Trump and all that but when you really look at it the selfishness of Trump is really a manifestation of the selfishness yeah. that we see in our society where we don't want to you know pay for people's health care and we don't want to uh, I mean look this is so funny I just I came across this uh, I think it was Stephen Colbert trying to make fun of him but it's such a, uh, as much as I love Stephen Colbert and laugh at his stuff, but it's silly. When he says Trump needs twice a day a dossier of uh, positive news about him. And so the crowd laughs, ha ha, this is so funny, look how silly he is, look how narcissistic he is. I mean, come on, wait a second. What is Twitter and Facebook? <laughs> yeah. You're Isn't right. it just you posting things and then getting likes? Right. Yep. That's all it is. So what is Trump doing? He's just got Facebook just at a grander scale than you were able to get it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a profound thought, man. <laughs> that's yeah. a very profound thought. And it, it it becomes an addiction. You know, a lot of people, they don't feel complete. Um, they have to post something. You know, it's diarrhea of yeah. posting. They have to right. post something. Yeah, Mohammed, but, I, I want to backtrack to the example we talked about earlier about the prayer times and whatnot. So, yeah. um, you know. Prayer 
it's yeah. Ramadan, it's the Hilal, it's the right. Crescent. Right. So, and the, the attitude that I find really disheartening is, for example, let's say, um, depending on what time you start your fast, right? I think there's people start their fast at different times. I yeah. personally follow, I think it's the 18 degree opinion. So I'm like starting my fast like a half an hour before my brother and a lot of my brother in Chicago, um, yeah. you know, just because I'm like, there's a pos And, you know, from what I learned, that's, you know, other people have learned differently. But when you talk to people, they're like, they're so dismissive of they're like, yeah, you know, yeah, whatever. No it's like, I swear to God, there's no taqwa in this. <laughs> Like I, even in our own home, I could tell you like personal experience, like we have these fights at home, even when I go visit uh, with my folks, it's the same thing. And it's like, you know what? Y'all do what you want to do. But as far as I'm concerned, I want to be on the safe side on this. Yeah. And, and, like, so, and those same folks are sometimes involved in like activism or, you know, whatnot. And, you know, like you're hitting on some really like root issues. But what are – so this happened to the Christian – this happened to the Christian community, right? I, and a lot of folks would say there's, you know, as you're talking, a lot of people would say, for example, okay, the critiques of the, let's get into this a little bit. Cause I know that this is something that you, you are pretty knowledgeable in the critiques of the, for example, the Ash'ari school would say that Imam Abu Hassan al-Ash'ari, for example, in his response to the Greek philosophers, you know, you know, kind of, adjusted certain things like you know or people would say whether it's right or wrong don't you think that's the kind of arguments i've heard as well that that's and and that's kind of the whole that what's happened with the rise of you know the 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 salafi movement etc they're trying to go back to puritanicalism and everyone's trying to go to this absolute truth but do we have like an absolute truth but at the same time i think a lot of you know when i listen to your series on the creed of deliverance um, yeah. I think that's when I, you know, starting to realize that, okay, there's, I mean, I, I feel like we've all, it's Muslims within like, you know, there's, div, there's divisions within us, right? So we have this, we have within, we have Sunni Islam, we have Shias, right? How, and then yeah. if we follow things logically, like, is there an absolute truth within us? Is there, is, is that restricted to like a general Sunni uh, is, thought? Isn't just, isn't that just a Shahada though? The absolute truth? And then, then, uh, so this is. This is this point is great, Sim. It's yeah. it's actually what that is. It's uh, you have to distinguish. And I every time I teach Taqida stuff, I tell people, I tell the students, listen, what we're gonna go through right now are intellectual constructs made by scholars, great they scholars. Are constructs, yep. Yeah, they're constructs in an attempt to offer a coherent um, uh, let's call it justification of why you believe what you believe, but if you really boil down to the root of it. We're not going to, uh, as uh, they said, do not constrict the vast mercy of Allah. This religion is not going to be proven by philosophical treatises and uh, elaborate theological things. These are like what uh, I like Ibn Rushd um, um, in Fasl al-Maqal, that it's a small text where he talks about uh, looking at the general population and he divides them into three types. You have... Uh, just the general people, and then you have people that like to argue and stuff, and then you have people of haqiqah, that they don't get into these things because they understand the essence of the arguments themselves, and they don't need these elaborate uh, breakdowns. So these are intellectual constructs. We're going to go through them so that we can help you because the fact is, whether you like it or not, um, and this is something that uh, Majid Fakhri, I'm, I'm putting together a course um, on uh, Islamic philosophy, introduction to it. 
And uh, Majid Fakhri has got this really nice text on it. And in the introduction of it, he says, Muslims initially tried to stay in this pure kind of, let's just do the basic stuff. But as they started to interact with Christians and Zoroastrians and the Persian philosophies and all of these, and the Greeks' work started to come up, you are now in a position where it's almost like, imagine yourself like with the, with the advent of uh, gunpowder, and you're still having a sword and trying to go to battle. Like, you're going to get annihilated. Um, same thing with the spread of the printing press. Like, people are getting knowledge left, right, and center, and you're going to say, no, we don't want it for 500 years. Again, you're going to get annihilated intellectually. So what Muslims did initially was they recognized after they tried to resist for so long that this is something we have to engage with and we have to offer a response to it. But again, these are intellectual constructs. If you want to make yourself a name in philosophy, all you got to do is punch a hole through somebody else's. Everybody is deficient. My ability to think, no matter how smart or intelligent I think I am. So it's going to be deficient in some way. So don't worship the intellectual construct that you've come up with. That's the problem. I did an interview with Sheikh Saeed Foda. I think it was, what is it, two years ago now? And I asked him, because he's like one of the foremost theologians for the Ash'ari school. I asked him about this very question. And he said, when I call someone to Islam, I don't call him to Ash'ari school. I call him to Islam. Then after that, once they believe and if they want to engage in theology and things like that, I will tell them, this is the theology I learned from the school that I think makes most sense. But it's up to you. It's, it's, at the end of the day... No, sorry. What's that? No, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. At the end of the day, I'm not going to ex excommunicate anybody for if they believe La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah and we all agree on the basic premises of this religion that this is the messenger and this is Quran revelation from Allah. And after that, you want to create your intellectual constructs from it? Uh, fine, do whatever you want. But that's that's this is where intellects have different uh, abilities to get um, insights, to understand, to see through things. I'm not going to uh, restrict people's intel intelligence uh, to what I think is appropriate because people get questions from all kinds of ways. So whatever seems to make most sense to you, at the end of the day, we're still saying the Shahada, we're praying the five daily prayers, we're all agreeing on the basic stuff. Sure, yeah. but like so, I want to ask you a question. So don't, do you think that there's even some of the intellectual constructs could lead you down? The, so, for example, I, I'll, I'll give you my own little personal spiel real quick, and then you can kind oh. of analyze. So my background, as you may have heard from other podcasts, like when I first came yeah. into the Dean – I was a pretty hardcore Salafi, and now I'm, you know, I'm pretty strict on the madhab of Imam Malik, and I'm even like, and I'm studying, I'm still studying theology and whatnot, but for example, yeah. like, my approach to fiqh is like following the school, because I feel like the average layman will start just following his or her desires if they open it up beyond yeah, the madhab, you know, where they're, like, the Salafi approach to fiqh has been, right? Yeah. So, and I'm like, and that leads you down to a point where you're just picking and choosing um and not doing necessarily what like and, and I'll be honest there are opinions that I believe are the truth but I don't necessarily yeah. follow because of the weakness of my own nafs right but I yeah. acknowledge that whereas that's actually a growth that's that's a immaturity on your part to acknowledge that you know so but but, yeah. but my thing is if you're following like a more like a salafi not that the salafi approach to fiqh is wrong necessarily like certain people can maybe you know, use that. But for the layman, when they just hear that that's how they approach it, and then that leads them down to a rabbit hole of where they're just picking and choosing random stuff and doing whatever's 
the easy thing to do, right? And then opens up another can of worms. Like, don't you think some constructs could be used in that way? And that's kind of what I was alluding to earlier. So can be, but uh, just uh, just a correction for uh, about the Salafis. The Salafis are following a school. It's not like every Salafi is just following his whim. If you ask most Salafis, as far as at least the ones that I've come across, they they usually have a couple of scholars that they refer their their actions to. So they're in a way they're they're still following a madhab in a way. It's just not the Maliki or the Shafi. They're following the madhab of let's say Sheikh bin Uthaymin, for example, or whoever that they you know defer their religious practice uh, validities too. So, and these are legitimate scholars who have achieved uh, great levels of scholarship and they come up to conclusions that maybe the general schools may not agree with, but that's just their position. So it's, they're still following some sort of construct. It's not like they're just following women desire every which way. I haven't come across Salafis that, you know, just go on Google by themselves and do, you know, everything decide for themselves for whatever they want to do. I wouldn't call that being a Salafi. I just call that being Googly. Yeah, well, actually, <laughs> that, that, <laughs> so you, you, you're right about that. That's true. Because I, 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 when I was a Salafi, that's how, I pretty much followed the Fatawa, the much, you know, of the permanent commitment, the legend Daima. Yeah, the you human, know what I mean? Human beings can't be saved from following somebody. They have to follow somebody. Even if somebody says that, you know, I just follow Hadith. Okay, which book of Hadith? Do you first yeah. refer to his Bukhari and Muslim? Okay, you're on the method of Bukhari and Muslim. That's cool, whatever, yeah. right? But I think what you're referring to, there may be some wires that are being crossed is there's a, a difference in um, what is an absolute truth in Aqidah and there's a difference in absolute truth, which is fiqh, right? They're two different sciences, yeah. you know, and there's those wires can't be crossed. Um, so is one beautiful thing about understanding the Shahada, La ilaha Muhammad Rasulullah, is that it's so simple. And it just requires a little bit of understanding and, you know, your senses and your intellect are intact. Then it becomes a lot, it's a lot easier to understand wahi after that. But the one thing that I teach students uh, to save them confusion is that there's an academic study of Aqidah and there's an original Aqidah, right? The academic study is understanding why these things came about, all of these uh, different approaches, whether it's Athari or Ash'ari or Maturidi, whatever the case may be. These are academic studies of Islam, usually for specialists to deal with, mm-hmm. at least in the past, right? It was it was meant for specialists to deal with. If they want to specialize in Aqidah to defend the Muslims against any phil- philosophies that may uh, tarnish or, or, or bring up barriers between them and their creator, so then there would be an elite group of scholars that would deal with the academic study of Aqidah. But other than that, the Muslim just believes La ilaha Rasulullah and that's more than enough and that's all that he requ- that's all that's required for him to enter Jannah, you know? Uh, Dr. Gilan, before we wrap up uh, this podcast, are there any good uh, type of philosophies that might, uh, you know, that there might be some benefit from... I know a lot of uh, young Muslims these days, they listen to guys like Tim Ferriss's podcast and they say, you know, uh, well, Tim, Tim basically it purports this uh, philosophy of Stoicism. And uh, Stoicism is basically a philosophy that talks about, you know, uh, making when, when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade out of it, you know. So <laughs> can, you, can you, uh, I like you know, talk about any type of, uh, you know, sleight of hand that might be happening with this type of philosophy? Is, is there something that, uh, you know, you might be agreeing with, but then you're also taking on a whole other. Yeah, you're a uh, part. You're becoming a part of something. Yeah. Before I get into that, just uh, just uh, 
uh, tail off on what Sheikh Amr was saying to Maheen about that, uh, la ilaha illallah. When I experience the world, when I approach the world, when I get up in the morning and I pray, I'm not going through, uh, you know, Allah wajib wujud, and these are the attributes, and I'm like engaging in this intellectual construct of like making sure that I got all of that correctly before I engage in my prayer. I simply get up and I just, you know, acknowledge it's, there's this experiential, non-rational aspect of belief that you just get up, you recognize Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's presence, uh, you recognize that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is in control of everything and that what you're going to do right now is acknowledge that and make a connection with Him and do the athkar and do your prayer and do all of these things. And that's it. When it comes to aqidah and stuff like that, the reason people make a big fuss about it is because they start to worship their intellectual constructs. And that's where people go wrong. So, to every, لِكُلِّ مَقَامٍ مَقَالٍ and if, uh, you know, for every station, there is a type of speech and there's a discourse. And like uh, Ali anhu said, Ali ibn Abi Talib said, uh, Speak to people according to their stations, to their, to their intellects. And that means you have to acknowledge who can handle some discourse and who can't. You know, you don't speak to the physicist in the same way that you speak to, uh, let's say, an arts major about uh, existential questions and about the nature of the world and reality and things like that. So that's where the role of theology comes in. If you're wondering about like the role of Ash'ari, Salafi, all of that stuff, I look at it as hadithun nasa ala qadri There are certain intellectual inclinations that people have. And I, I see it as a mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he has brought forth into manifestation these different approaches to explaining Muslim belief intellectually that can jive with so many different types of people. That's a sign of the mercy of Allah. That you have some people that can't handle that type of talk. You know, they don't get it. I've, I've, I've actually seen that myself. I've seen students, I was like, when I try to explain it to them and they're not getting it, I was like, this is not for you. This is not, you know, go do something else. It's like, Allahumma uh, salli Sayyidina Muhammad, Ibn Salah. I can't remember who was writing this in his biography. He tried to study logic. And he tried to do it in secret. And this is like a great muhaddith, scholar of usul uh, al-hadith and mustalah and all of that, muqaddimat al-musalah. And he couldn't get it. He couldn't hash it. And I can't remember his shaykh at the time, but he, he told him, leave this. Because you will lose your status amongst the people. People now see you as a great scholar. If they recognize, if they find out, the general public finds out that you couldn't hack it in logic, your status is going to be diminished. And it's not going to be a deserved diminishment of your status. It's just this is not your field. So this is kind of how I approach this question with regards to aqidah and these different intellectual constructs. Allahumma imanuka iman al-ajais, as Imam Fakhreddin al-Razi said. Allah just gives belief like the belief of old ladies. Because there's nothing more powerful than that. Uh, with regards to young people and stoicism and stuff, this is like the new age religion. I was talking to Sam on, uh, on Twitter uh, DM there. It's a new age religion. You know, uh, I think I might now write a, I wrote an article a few years ago, what was Rumi talking about uh, that people can find online? Because Rumi was being quoted for all kinds of wrong, nefarious purposes between couples and whatnot. Um, when in fact, he was talking about love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and love that believers have for each other. Um, stoicism is like the new thing now. Now you might have to write an article about like what Seneca was talking about or what Marcus Aurelius was talking about. Um, so Tim Ferriss and, and his espousement of this, again, it goes back to this business of what is the goal of life. This is a really fundamental, the most fundamental question that people have to ask themselves, which is what philosophy really stemmed out of 
is what is the meaning of existence? Why are we here? And your default answer, your simple, just you know, one-line answer from a Muslim perspective is that every action that you do is directed towards worship, servitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Even your body, you don't own that. So everything about this world is a recognition that this is Allah's property, this is Allah's creation, and you're a guest. And so your approach to it and what happens to it, that, that becomes now the question that you interplay with. Stoicism has a lot of positives in that aspect because it, from it you start to recognize this, um, um, that it's not about you. One of the most beautiful things about Stoicism, by the way, is this teaching that you, you expand your horizon to, uh, to reflect on the effects of your behavior upon other people. So one of the things that um, the Stoics will tell you, there's an example um, that people can look up, um, I think it's a Stanford Encyclopedia uh, of Philosophy. One of the examples that they use is like health and wealth, because they talk about your behavior and your reactions should be based on what is appropriate to the world and to nature. So one of the things that is appropriate to nature, to your nature, is to accumulate wealth. You want to seek wealth, you want to get rich, for example. But what if you're faced with a choice where you either accumulate wealth or um, uh, uh, contribute to the health, well-being of a fellow citizen? So you lose some of your wealth. The first choice benefits you personally. It's, it's appropriate to your nature. But your concern is not just restricted to you. Your concern is to rational beings. It's your concern is to other people as well. And so you, you contribute to the health of somebody else because that is concerning to you. That touches on this uh, healthcare debates and stuff that you guys have in the States. So it's one of the things that you start to recognize with stoicism that number one, materialism is not uh, necessarily a positive in its, in its essence. So the Epicureans, which is like the opposite school to the Stoics, to them, the pursuit of pleasure. That's the point of life. Become a hedonist, um, just, you know, love everything and just enjoy it and just have a pleasurable existence. The Stoics look at things as they're not good in themselves. They're just, they're indifferent. And so they can be served for positive and they can be served for negative. And a Stoic would approach these things uh, uh, based on how are they being applied or utilized according to nature and according to the rationality of the world. One of the things that the Stoics have is that this world is a rational reflection of God's will and it unfolds in a rational way. And so your behavior and your approach to a lot of things should be like that. Um, one of the things about it, if you pick up the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, this is almost like the Hikam of Ibn Ata'illah for the Stoics. Um, it's a lot of very profound things that are being said in there. And it's really just to um, establish your relationship with the world and to recognize um, that it's not really about pleasure as an end in itself uh, for your physical being, but there's also your rational being. Pursuit of happiness is not about just accumulation of things. It's about living in accordance with the rationality of nature. So it, it helps in this way of living harmoniously with the world. What I would question about it is the general intention that you have behind all of this stuff. So if your intention is, is to pick up another philosophy, because that's really what, uh, you know what's interesting about all of this stuff? 
it's all proof that mankind requires, needs as an absolute necessity, uh, a, a religious uh, paradigm to live within. And even though they try to do away with Christianity, they try to do away with God, they, come, they still come up with concepts in replacement of these things. Yes. One of them, the latest one, is Stoicism. Stoicism is basically, I want to live like a Muslim with Rila. That's really what stoicism is. If you want to uh, break it down, you might have some. Wait, what's to the say last term you said with Rida? Rida, yeah. Like, what does that mean? Rida is this content. content acceptance of God's will in the world. Okay. So whatever Allah wills to happen, you have this Rida. It doesn't mean that you become lackadaisical and just kind of sit back and let things unfold or whatever. You still struggle and do things and work and, but whatever you're, it's upon you to strive, but it's not upon you to arrive. Right. It's upon you to do the work and, and work hard and do all of these things. But the overall result of how things turn up, that is outside your control. That is not within your control. And so you, it's actually, I'm paraphrasing now. I just recall like it's one of the, my favorite line, uh, kind of lines from uh, the meditations of Marcus Aurelius. Cause he, he does talk about that. He's like, you recognize that the only thing you have control over is your reaction to external events that you have no control over. You have no control over people. You have no control over how the world turns out. You have control over your reactions and your engagement with the world and how you choose to go about it. The outcome of it is out of your hands. It's with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Rida is acknowledging that. It's, it's, a, it's not just acknowledging and accepting, but accepting with contentment that this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants and I'm happy with that, regardless of what happens. And just this, this act of trying to seek out truth and I mean this this initiative that's just your fitra, you know, echoing and, 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 and yearning to, 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 to find its creator. That's all it is. When you take Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, <clears throat> excuse me, out of the picture, you take Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala out of your life, your, your nafs and yourself and your fitra is going to try to reach out for something because it has that need and it's, it's hardwired to, to, to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There is no alteration in the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. These people can try to come up with all kinds of philosophies and intellectual constructs and come up with concepts to replace essential realities within the human being. But ultimately what they end up doing is running around in circles, confused and bewildered, while at the same time believing that they're rational and progressing. But to, to observe this, as you mentioned, to observe it and look at it and look at all these constructs that are being formed, all these philosophies, the, the true essence of the believer is to actually look at these things and bring him closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because you're recognizing that they're just trying to find Allah and they're going the wrong way, right? So oh, totally. even looking at these things, just observing them, if you want to say from a bird's eye view, even looking at these things that are trying to denounce Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it actually takes you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because you see what's being done, right? You see what's happening. I can tell you just from personal experience, the more I, I go into this stuff and the more I study it, the um, the greater connection I feel, like the more love I have for this religion to the point of like, you know, like I, I don't know if people experience this desire to really go out and just scream out like, I love this really, you know, like I actually do love this religion. I, that I grow in love for it because it just, it affirms for me like SubhanAllah, like how lost would you be just going around in circles trying to figure this out or figure that out? Yeah. And, you know, and you get insulted for it. You're like, oh, yeah, this is the God of the gaps argument and this and that. It's like, no, man, I have a completely coherent worldview. And I recognize my limitations and where my intellect can take me and where it can't take me. And um, one of the biggest 
beautiful things about having this belief is that when you get intellectual humility, you find that your intellect actually expands. Yes. You start to see things that you normally wouldn't see if you thought of yourself too much. The arrogance of Iblis. Right. Yeah, I, I want to give a quick plug. So you're talking about, we're talking about stoicism and how you respond to life's mission. So Urban Myers, the football coach of Ohio State, I'm, you don't know anything about college football because you, you're from Canada, but that's like my like <laughs> life's gonna take over my life in a couple of weeks. <laughs> you know, well, you guys are CFL and stuff, but I went to, I went to school there, and so his yeah. his coaching philosophy that he tells his players is E plus R equals O. E is an event, R is your response, and O is the outcome. Yeah. Right. So the E is something out of your control. You then yes. R is within your the response is within your control, and then O yep. O is the outcome of that. So. I thought about that. I want to like have you talk about something really quickly. There's a ton of stuff that I wanted to ask you about, which we'll have to defer. Um, for example, your whole con- – I know you had that um, podcast on your show about that sister who was thinking about converting to Islam. And like, oh, and Sheikh Amr and I were talking about all these like random thoughts that go through a convert's mind or potential convert's yeah. mind. Um, we'll say that for another show. But there's a lot of deep stuff that we talked about here. And – I want to refer people to – so first of all, listeners, if you aren't subscribed, go subscribe to Muhammad Gilan's podcast. It's on – you're on SoundCloud as well, right? SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and if they have none of that, they can just go to my website, andalusonline.org, and just uh, stream the stuff directly from there. And you've got some gems on YouTube that are like – Outside the realm of that, like some kind of like like Q and A things like that, really interesting stuff. Yeah, sometimes I record these. I haven't recorded in a while because it's just been you know right. selective, time selective. Yeah. So this this is what I want everyone to do, okay? Because there's a lot of stuff to digest in the show. But first, um, if you, you might have to listen to the show twice, you might have to go back and listen to our first show with him twice. But uh, Muhammad, talk about your last show that I listened to on your channel. You talked about how. We should be in a habit of writing stuff down. Oh my to god! To generate that was, that so was amazing you, advice that you sent. I need you to like, please share that with our listeners, and then listeners use that, implement that, um, because I, that's something I'm trying to start getting in the habit of. Because that's something how we can organize our. We talk about organizing our thoughts a lot. So this is like complex stuff. So why don't you go into that a little bit? So I I, I heard this a long time ago from a Syrian writer. Allah, you know, save the Syrians and just bring an end to all of this atrocity. I but mean. the Syrian writer was, um, he said, I believe, and I took this belief wholeheartedly. He said, I believe that if you don't write, you're not thinking. Um, and I and I truly believe that. You have no idea how many articles I've written that didn't see the light of day. Because as soon as I started writing them out, two things became exposed to me. Number one, how little I know about the subject that I thought I knew a lot about. And number two, that my thoughts were, my conclusions about the subject were not actually in line with the coherence of where these thoughts are supposed to be taking me. And how, so, inc- and how incomplete they are. I think you mentioned and, that. And they're complete. They're just incomplete thoughts. So I need to really work through it. I need to read more about the subject. Um, these are uh, psychological phenomena. I don't, I don't recall the names of them now, but people always overestimate what they know about a subject. And it's because they... Um, uh, what happens is they they follow they follow intellectuals. So let's say that you know you follow someone like I don't know Sam Harris, uh, and you think that you know you're a rational person, and he's he's got all these things that he and he talks about, 
and he talks about these subjects, and then you think that you know something about these subjects, and then you start to form opinions about them. The way that you can discover that you actually have not formed an opinion yourself, but you've just taken up his opinion as your own, is by sitting down and writing it out. What do you actually know about the subject? So you take a, a subject matter like, I don't know, what, what uh, let's give an example of something. Um, IQ, right? This was like a big thing where, because he tried to basically say that black people are less intelligent than white people. You sit down and you write down about IQ. What do you know about the intelligent quotients? The intelligence quotient. Start writing down. You'll find yourself, if you finish a line, I'll, I'll, cl I'll clap my hands for you. You know, there's a, there's a lot of our listeners who listen to the Joe Rogan experience, uh, that podcast. Joe Rogan experience, for yeah. example. There's so much. Well, Sam, Sam always comes on that show, right? But then yeah. a, another guest will come on a, a couple of episodes later challenging something Sam said. And yeah. Joe won't be able to explain uh, what yes. Sam said. And that is exactly what you're saying right now. Yeah. So that's, that's really the case. So any thought that you have, you think that there is a, a conflict, let's say, uh, I, I think there is a conflict between Islam and science, for example. Do you? Okay, sit down and write down exactly and be as specific as you can possibly be about where these conflicts lie. And why are they conflicts? Explain that to yourself. Just write it down. You don't have to publish anything. Just sit down in a personal journal and write it out. As soon as you engage in this process of writing out, you will start to expose how ignorant you are about a subject. You think that Islam oppresses women, for example? Sit down and write it out. Like, where, where are the things that you think? You, you want to talk about patriarchy? First of all, sit down, write down, and define what does it mean to be patriarchal. Explain why is patriarchy bad, first of all. After you define it, if let's say you've, you've gone that far and you've defined it. Why is it bad? What's wrong with patriarchy? If you ask most people this question, they won't be able to answer you. They won't know what to say. Like, why? You talk about it as a negative thing, but you haven't actually justified why it's a negative thing. So justify to yourself why it's a negative thing. And then in the opposite direction, why it could be a positive thing. Put yourself in an uncomfortable position so that you can hone in your skills with regards to what you think you know. And once you start engaging in this practice, you'll find that you actually don't know anything. You're just... Uh, repeating opinions of other people that you happen to be a fan of and uh, you're passing that off as your product, as your knowledge, your opinion, but it's not your opinion. And you'll be shocked at the end of it and hopefully you'll be a bit humble by the end of this exercise. And I would say do this with everything. Everything you think you know about anything, just sit down and do it. You have an opinion about what's going on, let's say in uh, Palestine. What's going on in Palestine? Sit down, write it out. Syria, sit down, write it out. Saudi Arabia, Turkey, like right now, Turkey is just getting so vilified, right? If you listen to the news, yeah. you can't help but come out as like an anti-Erdogan type of person. You would think he's like the next Hitler. That's the way that they're portraying him, right? right? All right, sit down. If you have an opinion, you have a strong opinion about Turkey, sit down and write out exactly what is going on in Turkey beyond headlines. Don't just stick to headlines, right beyond the headlines. What's going on beyond the headlines? What's happening? Who's getting arrested? Why they got arrested? And I'm not justifying or uh, blaming anybody here. I'm not saying bad or good. I'm not, I'm not passing judgment on what's going on in Turkey. I'm just saying, if you have an opinion about any subject, sit down and write it out. And you will find that a lot of times you'll, you'll stop 
tweeting about it. Okay. Which is why I don't comment on everything. For sure. Can, 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 I, can I assign Can we assign homework? So, Sheikh Amr, is there anything that you... I, I've got a subject that I'm going to say, I'm going to put out there that I will. So for me, I'm going to, I'm going to write about my, why do I disagree with the BLM movement? I'm putting yeah. myself out there right now. I, I, that's, that's my homework. Sheikh Amr, what do you got? Uh, I don't know. You're catching me off guard. I don't, I honestly didn't consider writing about anything right now. Um, but now that you're asking. I mean, if there's anything that comes in my head, like this is something that I've been, I don't we we've been so sim you got anything i don't you're oh more. my gosh uh, just pick something we'll, we'll say we'll like report out on it at some point like he well there's, there's so much that I, i've been wanting to write about recently uh um well let, let's talk about the, the the feminist movement and and see where it takes us and <laughs> all right <laughs> I'll, tell you, I'll tell you i used to repeat i used to just think like oh my god the feminist movement and the pay gap for example you think there is a pay gap between men and women you don't think there is a difference between men and women <laughs> Write out exactly what you know about the subject. Yeah. Not your opinion, what you know about it. What do you know about the pay gap? What do you know about women's employment rates? What do you know about the development of wages over time? What do you know about the law regarding pay? Can, can someone actually hire a woman to do the same work as a man and then just give her less pay? Is that legal even? Is that Write out what you know about a subject. And you will find, and especially a subject that you think you have a strong opinion on. Right. So recently, like my, my podcast coming out tonight, inshallah, it's going to be about the difference between men and women. And all of my podcasts and topics that I talk about, these are things that I actually sit down and I write out, like, what do I know about the subject? Do I know anything to say, to, to, to have a substantive, uh, substantive conversation about? And a lot of times I change my mind about things. Like, oh, wait a minute. This is not like what I thought it was would you because say, I actually looked into it. Would you say primarily that's how you start off all your research is you start to write on the subject? Exactly. That's how I start. I just start writing about it. And it's like, oh, this. what do I know about this? What do I know about the relationship between, you know, uh, education, for example, and uh, mixing? People just take things for granted and they think like this is good for society and stuff, but you know, once you go look into the research, you'll get a little uncomfortable with a lot of findings that you'll come across because they will go contrary to opinions that you've adopted from the popular culture. Yes. Oh, for the listener, also one of the things that I benefited most from your videos on YouTube, uh, he, by the way, he has a YouTube channel and make, make sure to subscribe and check it out because there's so much, so much uh, benefit that you could gain from it. Um, but one of my favorite videos of yours was how to take notes and extract knowledge from books that you read and yeah. uh i tweeted out to you one of your what am i i laughed out loud when you said this during the video you said there's two types of stupid people yeah. <laughs> one is one of them is the person the one who actually loans his book to anyone the other type of stupid person is returns a book after borrowing it. Right. <laughs> yeah, but actually, I had a question real quick about the whole writing thing. So first thing, it's like a two-step. So you write what you think you know, and then you go fill. You got to go research and fill in the gaps. Yeah. That's this yeah. process. Sheikh yeah. Amr, I've, I, I have a subject for you. Go ahead. You are going to research the issue of certain Indian subcontinent scholars and their dreams. Especially the cotton one. Remember things like that. Oh my gosh! Okay, <laughs> I will research some continent dreams of Indian scholars. 
<laughs> okay, we'll, we'll we'll tell you about that dream after the show. Uh, yeah, but uh, but uh, it, yeah, it was before you 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 to seal everything off for the show. I just wanted to know, uh, Doctor Muhammad Gilan or or Gilan, how do you pronounce your name? Gilan, to be pronounced. I always say Gilan for some reason. I don't know. Why, maybe. Such an honor to be associated with that name, but but, you know, but the, the, <laughs> the first show we had with you, you could ask him. The first show we had with you, I was like, man, I cannot wait to have a conversation with his brother again, man. So all of us collectively on the Mad Mamluks, and there's no sugar coating. We all love you for the sake of Allah, bro. You're an amazing person, mashallah. Yeah, I, I was I was contemplating. I was like, I gotta go. Like, if anything, I want to do now is like just. Go to Chicago for nothing else. Just drop in for a day and just visit these guys. Bro, I will kick out my family out of my house <laughs> so you can have the whole house for yourself as long as you want. I will knock on my own door to come inside of your house, which will be... It's really refreshing, to be honest, to uh, have this. You know, I know some guys, like I've seen some comments referring to the show as like alt-right or whatever, but... I don't know, man. It's um, there's a there's a lot of just madness going on, and and sectarianism and tribalism moving Muslims towards a way or towards a movement. It's really good to have a, a somebody that's kind of like you know pull back a little bit. These yeah. guys are going down the wrong direction. <laughs> well, I'm glad we have you as part of our. I consider you part of our one of our founding members. You guys like you and uh, Daniel Hakikachu and uh, you know Joe Bradford. You guys really helped this show. Um, drastically you, yeah I mean like we, we we barely hit any numbers we only had like what two three hundred downloads an episode and we'd be like wow there's three hundred people listening to us and now we're like oh my gosh if we don't hit this week this is not a, a good show so alhamdulillah <laughs> <laughs> yeah alhamdulillah no I, I, I yeah I want to really definitely uh, echo uh, Sheikh Amr's sentiments and um, so uh, I I was curious though since you moved to Australia have you picked up a pet koala bear or kangaroo <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I, I saw a wallaby. That's one thing. I saw a kangaroo across the highway, a couple of kangaroos. But that has been the extent of my um, really going out and exploring the city. It's I came with a purpose, and the purpose was to study medicine. And I had a goal in mind with regards also to the other things that I do. I did not want to stop. Well, man, I wrote that article in the middle of my final exams for the last semester. Which article? Sorry, what was that? It's uh, Ibn Taymiyyah was a man of his time, oh, I think. Oh, the, how the Muftah article? Yeah, okay. Yeah, the Muftah article. And I wrote that in the middle of exam period. So, I, you know, just the lifestyle that I hold, it's, it doesn't really grant me this, you know, pleasure or the luxury of being able to go out and, you know, just enjoy life as, it's, you know, people enjoy it, I guess. But right. make sure to... Check out a, a kangaroo boxing match, though. That, that's uh, yeah, quite that's actually pretty cool, man. Yeah, and, and you know what? And, what? and the listeners out there, one of his, I think one of your YouTube, you're you're a master of time management, in my opinion. And I was, par I'm always paranoid when we do a Skype show that the listener would, the guest would have forgotten or not scheduled it properly. And I was telling this to Sheikh Amr, but I was like, yeah, but uh, Gilan, man, he like. Yo, I don't think I think he's got on his calendar. I don't oh, think about the room. No, no, you, you sent me a text saying, Hey, make sure you remind Dr. Gilan. I'm like, nope, I'm not gonna remind him because I know he's gonna be there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like yeah, there, there's a lot, lot of better like you know, we, we all can learn a lot from you, so so we really appreciate you uh, sharing this inshallah. Guys of interstations and, and uh, yeah, grant you acceptance in this world in the next inshallah. I mean, I mean, and make us all upon 
you know, the straight path and make us, you know, the, the dream that I have or the, the desire that I have is for all of us to not just be in paradise together, but to be also neighbors to the uh, Habib Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in paradise, to just be in his company and the company of the righteous ones. So, you know, it's, um, it's, it's this, this, you know, as, as they say, this world is just a, a place that you trans, it's a, you just pass through it. It's like a bridge that you just get across. And so, um, it's good that you have people to remind you to company is really important. You know, as a final counsel to people, just really reflect on who you listen to, listen, reflect on who you hang out with because that's who you are. You know, you, I don't need to talk to you to find out who you are. I just talk to your friends and look at what you read and look at what you watch and who you listen to. And if you're wondering, for those of you who have doubts and issues with things, just look at what you're, you have to be very protective of your mind. You know, it's like junk food will just give you a junk body. Same thing with information. Not everything out there deserves your attention and deserves your time. So just pay attention to these things and, and ultimately, don't worship intellectual constructs. You want to get to the truth of this religion, you have to actually practice it and do it and engage physically with it. It's not something that you're going to be able to just uh, magically, through osmosis, pick up just because you've listened to the Madman Dukes or listened to somebody. You have to actually engage in the practice. Get up for subah. Two times in the day that you have angels literally taking turns, you know, with their shifts. And in the morning, when they come down and the, the night shift goes up, they just say, what did you find my servant doing? Well, we found him worshiping you. Well, you know, Allah, when he asked them, we found him worshiping you, remembering you. And what a pleasure to, Subah is really my favorite prayer because I actually feel like I, I feel the presence of the angels, like actually there. So I would say just focus on these things and just practice, man. It's not, these are things that we talk about and it gets people excited and they feel like, oh, mashallah, we have intellectuals and stuff. But that's not what this religion is is ultimately going to be down to at the end of the day. It's going to be, what did you do while you were here? Yeah. All right. On that note, we will bring you back sooner rather than later. Inshallah, <laughs> there's a ton of stuff more to cover. But uh, yeah. inshallah, you'll, uh, can, your, your studies are keep going well and uh, – you know, yeah, you, you, you do us you do us proud down under, man. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is actually this is actually a good time uh, for us and him. I think uh, Sunday afternoon might be. Uh, for me, it's uh, two fifteen p.m. now, two thirteen p.m. Okay, yeah. Are, are you so? Are you are you in the middle of the semester right now? Yeah, we're just uh, yeah we're in, we're actually right in the middle of the term. Okay, so we're covering neurology now. Okay. Very cool. All right. Well, we'll we'll, we'll schedule you soon, inshallah, uh, for for, uh, for further discussion. But uh, for our listeners out there, if you have any questions or comments, you can email us at themadmumlukes at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. We're on Instagram. And you can leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Um, for our special guest, Dr. Mohammed Gilan, and for my co-host, Sheikh Amr Saeed and Sim, this is Mahin signing off. Assalamu alaikum. <laughs>